Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 11. But I want to begin with this quote. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. These famous words were spoken by President Ronald Reagan in the year 1987 in Berlin, Germany. And as most of you who are here know that these were made in reference to the Berlin Wall. Constructed in 1961, the wall was made to keep people from East Germany from getting into West Berlin and from there to West Germany. The wall could be up to 15 feet high at certain points, and at its height was about 100 miles long. But for those who lived through it, you know that it was more than a wall. The Berlin Wall became a symbol for the divide of the world in that time. The divide between the West, America, England, and their allies, and Soviet Russia in the East and their allies. This wall signified the division of the entire world at that point in history. My dad, who lived in Germany with his family in the late 60s, 1969, actually got to visit the Berlin Wall. He'd always tell the story of standing on this small, rickety wooden platform and looking over into East Germany. And what did he see as he tells the story, which I believe is 85% true? <laughs> when he looked over, he looked straight into the view of an armed East German guard. And when he looked down, he saw multiple rows, many yards full of barbed wire and barricades, obviously meant to deter anyone from trying to flee East Germany and to escape to West Berlin. In my dad's personal experience and in the recollection of history, the Berlin Wall represented division and hostility in every form. It represented a global struggle that shaped decades of world history. And while the Berlin Wall did come down in 1989, which I will come back to later, when my dad was there in 20 years earlier in 1969, he told me that there did not seem any hope for that wall to fall. I bring up this piece of history not just for a historical lesson, but as we think of our world's history, the modern history of this wall of hostility, that is a central metaphor that Paul will use in our passage today to talk about the unity we have in Christ. Not between the East and the West, but between Jews and Gentiles. And that in the sacrifice of Jesus, 
the greater wall of hostility was torn down and all believers were made into one people. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. The therefore that begins this part of the passage connects back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 that we looked at last week. Because we are saved by grace through faith and made for good works, therefore the following is true about our identity in Christ. But before Paul goes forward, he's going to take a quick step back. And using a similar rhetorical device that he used in verses 1 to 10, Paul is going to talk here about then versus now. And he's going to talk about it in the context of Gentile believers and Jewish believers. So he says in verse 11, you Gentiles, he's specifically talking to Gentile believers. They were before Christ separated from Christ. They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. There were physical markings that separated both Jew and Gentile. Paul is drawing on the fact that the Gentiles had no connection to the promises God made to the people of Israel who were marked with the ritual of circumcision. As one author writes about this, circumcision was the physical sign of their covenant with the Lord It pointed to the particular and exclusive relationship which Israel had with the God of the covenant. This physical difference was a sign that they were, as Paul says here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. They were not in relationship with God as the people of Israel were. The Gentiles did not have the advantages that the Jews did. And therefore, as he says at the end of verse 12, they had no hope and were without God in the world. That was then, this is now. Because like we saw last week in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, there is a great contrast in between verses 12 and 13. Let me read the end of 12 into verse 13 having no hope and without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles who before Christ were separated and alienated and here are further described as far off, but in Christ, those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus, these Gentile Christians are no longer separated, they are no longer alienated, and they are no longer strangers. 
through the sacrificial death of Jesus, those who were far away from him are now near to God in relationship. And in reversal of verse 12, they now have hope and are with God. Now sometimes when we read about the Jew and Gentile division in the church, I think sometimes we forget that we're all Gentiles. (laughs) Because I think growing up in the West, in the time in which that we have, we often think of ourselves as the near. But remember, when this is written, no one had any idea about this side of the world. (laughs) We are the ends of the earth. So if you're going to connect with anybody in the text, connect with the Gentiles here. There is a spiritual pride that naturally thinks, well, we must be the near because we're so awesome. It's good for us to step back into that world and recognize when he's talking about people being far away, that includes you and me. We have been brought near not because of what we have done, but because of the blood of Jesus. How is this possible? How was God in his goodness and justice able to take those who were far away and bring them near? And that's where verses 14 to 18 come in. Let's first look at verses 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul begins this section by talking about Jesus as our peace. By way of reminder, he is alluding to Micah chapter 5. Let me read that to you quickly. This is Micah chapter 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What Micah talked about in the future, he shall be their peace, comes to fulfillment in Jesus, for he himself is our peace. But it's interesting, and we should note that he doesn't say he made peace. He is our peace. Why would Paul say it that way? I think to help us understand the full embodiment of this peace, that as our peace, he is the one who makes peace, who brings peace. He is the source of peace. We think of Isaiah talking of the promised Messiah as the prince of peace. He is both the bringer of peace, the source of peace, and the embodiment of that peace. And the next couple of verses further explain how Jesus brought about peace. 
And we see this in the three participles that follow of being made, broken down, and abolishing. Let's look at those in turn. First of all, we see in verse 14 that he made us both one. That when we place our trust in Christ, we are made into one body. And using the Jews and Gentiles and thinking them as two parts of the whole, we see that these two groups are made into one. Now you're going to notice, if you read through this back later straight through, you're going to notice a lot of references to one and unity and all these words about coming together. But what I want us to see here in particular is that peace needed to be made. Jesus didn't need to help us be at peace or assist us in our peaceful efforts. No, Jesus himself made peace where we could not. God does not merely assist us in our unity. God creates the unity of the body of Christ. Secondly, we see that a part of making us both one is he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here, unity is described as what is taken away. And using the picture of a wall, again, spoiler alert, that's why I talked about the Berlin Wall at the beginning, right here. Paul gives us this wonderfully grounded picture of division. And that Paul tells us that God tore down that wall. And in the next phrase, we see what that wall was. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does it mean that Jesus abolished the law. I think it's best to understand it this way that in his life and death, that he fulfilled the law to such an extent that he brings in a new covenant, and therefore, using the language of Hebrews 8, he replaces the old covenant, which becomes nullified. Hebrews 8 would talk about the old covenant being obsolete. Because Jesus has made a new covenant using the ideas of Jeremiah chapter 31. And we can picture this by thinking of one aspect of the old covenant which separated Jew and Gentile. In the temple, there were areas for the Gentiles and there were areas that were only for Jews. There's a physical representation of the division between Jew and Gentile. That Gentiles had to come to the temple and be in this spot, whereas Jews could go in this other part. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus made a new covenant. And so that the people who worship God do not have to be separated into the different temple courts but are reconciled into one body. Paul points to this in the middle of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man 
in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God takes these two categories of people, Jews and Gentiles, and through Christ makes them into one new man. In Christ, all of us are united in one body of Christ. And in verse 16, Paul tells us that this happens because through the cross, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God. There is only one gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles need to be reconciled to God. And that only comes through faith in Jesus. And those who are separated are made one body through the one body of Christ through the cross. And it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that peace is made and hostility is killed. It's at this point in the text that Paul comes back to the idea of near and far. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 17 refers to the coming and preaching of Jesus. And this preaching of the good news that began with Jesus continued in his followers generation after generation. And following what was said earlier about reconciliation between God and people and between Jewish and Gentile believers, it is appropriate to refer to the gospel of Jesus as a message of peace. In fact, we will see later in Ephesians in the Armor of God chapter a reference to the gospel of peace in chapter 6, verse 15. That when we place our trust in Jesus, we have peace with God and peace with other Christians. And God offers his peace to Jew and Gentile alike, the far off and the near. And Paul adds here in verse 18 a benefit to that peace. That when we have peace with God, when we have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, Paul says we have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, thinking back to the Old Covenant, we see this pictured in the curtain of the Old Testament temple. As one author writes about this word access, that this word pointed to a free entry into the sanctuary as the place of God's presence. Because we have been saved by the one Savior, we have the one Spirit who gives us access to the Father. And we see in this word access the idea of relationship with the God of the universe. And we see in the word access the great gift of prayer that we have. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
When we have peace with God, we can cry out to God as our loving Father in prayer. Now Paul ends this passage with an extended look at three pictures of the unity we are to have as the church. Let's look at verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, Paul goes back to themes that began this part of the passage. And he tells these Gentile believers they are no longer strangers and aliens. As one author about this writes, they are neither homeless nor even second-class citizens. To use the language of verse 12, they are no longer separated from Christ or strangers to the covenants of promise. So what are they? How should we picture this unity? Again, Paul here gives three pictures. The first is that we are citizens of God's kingdom. The first word picture is that these Gentile Christians join the Jewish Christians in being citizens of God's kingdom. They have the same rights. They serve the same king. They are united under King Jesus. I don't know if you've had this experience before, but there's something about being in a foreign land and you meet someone or you interact with someone from the same country that maybe you didn't even know before. But there's something about being in that foreign land that emphasizes the unity we have with those people who are citizens of the same country. And oftentimes our differences seem to melt away when we're in a foreign country. And when our country can often feel foreign to us like we don't belong, we can lean into the unity we have with other believers, citizens with us, of the heavenly kingdom. But not only are we fellow citizens in God's kingdom, we are members of the household of God. Again, go back to verse 19, but you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul, again, addressing these Gentile believers who did not have the benefits of being God's people in the Old Testament, that they, together with the Jewish believers, are members of God's family. All believers are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ There is not multiple levels of, well, these are the favorite kids and these are the not liked kids. 
that we're all equally members of God's family. And even though some of our upbringings, we did not have very many positive experiences with our families, if that's you, you can still understand the picture of unity that Paul is trying to help us understand. That we know from our lives that the bonds of family are strong. And we need to act and live out the truth that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the memories I have from my upbringing as it relates to this, my dad's getting a lot of play in this sermon, isn't he? But, (laughs) hi internet. Um, There were multiple times when I was growing up that my dad would have a disagreement with someone who was a believer. Uh, He was a part of a Christian clinic and all of the members of that clinic uh, were believers, but they didn't always get along. And I don't know, I never asked him if he did this intentionally, but there were some guys he always referred to as brother so-and-so. But it was only certain guys. And whether he realized it or not, I think he was doing it because he was having disagreement with them. And he was reminding himself that while there was significant disagreement, they were in fact his brother or sister in Christ. Friends, I think we could learn from this word picture and examples like that where we can have deep disagreement, but we can still treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we are in conflict, that we are able to work it out or at least to persevere in loving that person despite our differences. Because we're not just a loose collection of individuals who choose to show up on Sunday mornings on a regular basis. No, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. The third picture we have is that of a temple. The church here is described as a temple. Beginning in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now when I say the church is like a temple, I'm not talking about the building. We as believers are built into the temple of God. Now he describes a little bit of the details here. First of all, this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what Paul is saying with that is that Jesus is the center He is the most important part on which the whole building is built. But on top of Jesus, with reference to the apostles and prophets, again, there's some debate about what is specifically meant here. But I think at a minimum, what it is talking about is referencing the proclaimed word of God through the prophets and apostles. 
And upon that foundation is built the church, those who have believed the message about Jesus. In this word picture, we are the bricks that make up the rest of the building. But notice there's the idea that this construction is ongoing. The temple of God's people grows and is being built. I think this is a reference to the numerical growth of God's church over history, but also a reference to the maturity growth of the church, specifically our growth in unity with one another. But this people building is described as a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see here again the work of the Spirit in binding together God's people into one body. We also see that God is with us. The church is a picture of his presence among his people like the Old Testament temple. And a temple is also a place where God is worshipped. We are to be a people who offer sacrifices of love and obedience to God and where he is worshipped in everything that we do. Notice that we do this not simply as individuals, but as a part of the unified body of Christ. A couple thoughts as we close up this morning. Number one, we need to see in this passage the unity with God through the peace of Jesus. Before Christ, you were alienated and far off from God. Through repenting of your sin and placing your trust in Christ, you can be brought near and reconciled to God. Today, if you've never done so, I would urge you to place your trust in Jesus Christ to be reconciled to the holy God of the universe and to become a member of the household of God. And when we are reconciled to God, we have access to him in prayer through the Spirit. Secondly, we need to see the unity with one another through the peace of Jesus. We are united one to another. The wall of hostility has been broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through our common faith, you are, we are unified by Jesus. I want you to think of all the different word pictures that we saw in this text that Paul uses for our unity. We are one body. We are members of God's family. We are citizens of his kingdom. We are bricks of his temple. And we have been reconciled to each other by the sacrificial death of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, related to that, because that has been done. Thirdly, because of the work of Jesus, we need to commit ourselves to the ongoing work of unity for the church. I want to go back my opening illustration talking about the Berlin Wall. And I want to talk about what happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall. One thing that happened was the cre- that Germany created a new holiday, Day of German Unity. Now, why do we have holidays like this? I think there's two main reasons. 
That we have holidays like this to remember and to celebrate what happened. So every year, the German people remember the division, the hostility, and celebrate the breaking of that hostile wall and the unity that they were able to enjoy. But holidays also cause us to look to the present and the future. As I researched for this sermon, and I specifically looked at how do they celebrate this day of German unity, I noticed a theme that ran through the responses of the people. Many of them noted the work needed to be done to bring about more fully the unity of that country. In one sense, the tearing down of that wall began the work of unity. But there was a process where that country needed to grow back into their unity. And I think for us as believers, as we read a text like this, that we remember and celebrate the unity we have with each other. But there is also a call that we live into the unity we have. That we grow and continue to break down the walls of hostility that divide us. We need to celebrate and remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and throughout all time. As I was writing this, I couldn't help but think of this idea. I am more united with a poor, elderly, black woman living in downtown Atlanta than I am united with an unbelieving island resident who looks and talks like me. I am more united with a believer who lives in China than I am with another middle-class white male in America. And that's true. Why? Because in Christ, we are members of the same household. That woman living in Atlanta is my sister in Christ. That man living in communist China is my brother in Christ. We must work hard to grow and preserve our unity in Jesus. In the church, Jesus has broken down the walls of hostility that exist in our world. Racial and ethnic division, as with Jew and Gentile. Walls of hostility according to economic status, politics, or country of origin. And we as God's people need to live out that unity we have in Christ. As we'll look later in a couple weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility.